This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, July 22nd, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, your host. We are here together every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen during those hours for any reason, although we encourage you to do so, we have a podcast. It's free of charge. It's every day. Once the show is over, it's available on demand. Totally free, as I mentioned. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a very busy show ahead, including Heidi Ganahl. She's running for governor out in Colorado. We will talk to her about that race. Corey DeAngelis, one of the top warriors in the country for school choice and against the teachers' unions. He's been very busy recently. There's some bad news for the teachers' unions. We will go through all of that with him in our next hour. We will also talk with Andy McCarthy about the January 6th hearing from last night and a few other topics with Andy. And closing things out guest-wise with Todd Pyro, our Fox News colleague, in the 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour, a couple different things to get to with Todd. We begin today's show with a Fox News alert. This was just crossing minutes ago. Steve Bannon has been found guilty of contempt of Congress for ignoring January 6th committee subpoenas. He faced two misdemeanor charges that could carry with them, now that he's been found guilty, 30 days to a year for each charge. I would be really shocked if they throw the book at him in terms of sentencing. These are misdemeanors. Annie McCarthy, who will be our guest later on, In the show, not sure if we'll get to this topic with him, but he had written previously, this was an open and shut case. In fact, Brett Baer asked me about it on Special Report earlier in the week, and I basically just quoted Andy. Steve Bannon's whole position, his defense, if you will, in the case was, screw you, which Andy predicted wouldn't really work, and so that prediction has now come to pass. Bannon has been found guilty. It's unclear what the sentence will look like. Now, on the matter of law and order in that broad category, I do want to also address here near the top of the show something very disturbing that happened in New York State yesterday. On the campaign trail, Lee Zeldin is the Republican nominee for governor. 
taking on Kathy Hochul, who is the incumbent. And Zeldin, who's a sitting member of Congress, was giving a speech in public, and he was approached on stage by someone who assaulted him. It was sort of unclear what was happening, and then things escalated and got pretty scary. In fact, here's the audio of it in Cut 22. Listen. And this is our last stand for New York. And there's only, there's only one option. So you might have heard the assailant say twice to Zeldin, you're done. And then they sort of started grappling a little bit and got pulled down. Zeldin went down. A bunch of people descended on it. The man was arrested. The suspect was arrested. You may have heard someone say he's got a knife. He did have something, this sharp sort of shiv object with brass knuckles that he brought up there. This was, on its face, it appeared to be political violence, a confrontation that turned violent and frankly could have been a lot worse thank god it didn't go any further during a speech a public speech being given by a politician and we're still trying to sort out exactly who this person is what he was motivated by my guess is we're not going to have a massive national conversation about civility that's what we do when democrats are targeted by some form of political violence Whether or not it was inspired at all by conservatives, that's the assumption that's made. That's the narrative that always takes off, and we have this big five-alarm civility fire. It doesn't really work in the other direction, which is just one of many examples of the type of bias and corruption that grips our news media. But this was upsetting. This was unacceptable. And then, of course, because it's New York and they have the laws that they have and the attitudes that they have in government toward crime, the assailant was charged with a felony and then immediately released on his own recognizance, which is what Zeldin predicted. After this all went down, Zeldin confidently predicted that that is precisely what would happen because that's what always happens basically in New York. You can be guilty, clearly guilty, just brazenly commit a crime, get arrested for it, booked, and then released. Like, remember the guy months ago who burned down the Christmas tree at Fox News? Who had, like, I forget the exact number, but tons of previous convictions and arrests. It's just been this merry-go-round through the justice system for him. He burns down the Christmas tree in a felony act of arson that could have been very dangerous. Thankfully, no one was hurt. And he was back on the street very soon thereafter. I think what had happened, actually, he had been arrested earlier in the day and then had been released and then burned down the tree. It It was some fact pattern that was very similar to this because that is the way... Crime is dealt with in New York. And so Zeldin, who's been very critical of these laws, he's campaigning against them, as a matter of fact. Zeldin came forward. 
having had this scary brush with this guy, and said, I bet you he'll be released, and so he was. Charged with a felony, immediately immediately released, back on his own recognizance. Lee Zeldin, the target of this attack, joined Brian Kilmeade, our colleague on Fox News Radio this morning, and in Cut 20 described some of his thoughts. Thankfully, there were a bunch of people on-site attendees at the rally who instinctively all jumped on this guy and tackled him. Law enforcement was there within minutes. Uh, What was crazy was that because of New York's cashless bail law, the attacker was immediately released back out onto the streets. Uh, This morning, because today I have rallies going on all day today, tomorrow, Sunday, I just finished my first rally. Security, law enforcement presence increased that's good. Uh, but yeah, last night, that was pretty nuts. And as anyone out there, I don't care whether you're right, center, left, whatever your party is, your ideology, it doesn't matter. In this country, we settle our scores, the ballot box, not through political violence. And uh, it was just a, a sad sight, obviously, from uh, my vantage point. It was a little bit hairier than uh, some of the other people that watched what happened. And uh, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Hard to argue with any of that. You have a Supreme Court justice with an assassin showing up at his house. Armed to the teeth, he came all the way across the country to kill a Supreme Court justice. It was out of the news in the blink of an eye. Same thing's going to happen here. Because the culture of political violence and domestic terrorism is right-wing, not left-wing. That is just the narrative. And no matter what happens and how often it happens, examples in the other direction, they just kind of get the perfunctory, bare-bones coverage, and then down the memory hole it goes. Zeldin went on in that, Ill, in that Kill Meat interview, Cut 21. You know, when I had my first debate of the Republican primary that just finished, one of the questions they asked me was, uh, do you tell us something that the audience may not know about you? And I gave it a thought for a second. I said, well, I'm a black belt. I once won the world championships in sparring. Uh, when, you know, at that moment, when he was coming at me, it was just, it was a simple move. I just grabbed his wrist in a particular way to hold it there. And it was only for a few moments that was necessary for a bunch of people to, uh, to tackle him. Uh, but I, you know, once I saw that weapon, I heard him saying, you're done. And he, he started lunging at me. Then I realized that, you know, this isn't somebody coming on stage to check the microphone. That's actually pretty scary. So you've got Lee Zeldin, black belt for governor. Republican up there in New York, and thank goodness he's okay. But the person who came after him on stage during a speech with a weapon is out on his own recognizance. Thank you, New York bail laws. Similar out in California, here's a story from foxnews.com. California alleged drug traffickers in massive fentanyl bust, no-shows in court after release on cashless bail. Surprise, surprise. I remember seeing this story a couple days ago, I think it was, where these guys were busted with a huge amount of fentanyl, which is deadly. And out there in California, they were just released with cashless bail. That's what they do in these jurisdictions, these pro-criminal jurisdictions. I don't know what else to call it. And then it's time to show up to court, and shock of all shocks, they don't show up. Two accused drug traffickers, this is from the story, busted with 150,000 fentanyl pills during a California traffic stop last month, failed to show in court Thursday after being released on cashless bail. The defendants are Jose 
Zendejas, who's 25, and Benito Madrigal, who's 19, released on their own recognizance less than 24 hours after their arrests with a large stash of illicit drugs. They were scheduled to appear for their arraignments at the county courthouse in Central California Thursday morning. They both failed to show. And before the arraignment was supposed to happen, the county sheriff said he did not expect the, de- the defendants to show up. And he placed the blame on the state's soft-on-crime attitude and so-called crum- uh, criminal justice reform. I mean, this stuff is such a failure. I'm in favor of some criminal justice reform, but nothing that looks like this. It's not only a failure, it's dangerous. And I know that New York and California, they really believe they're so much better than those horrible antediluvian flyover states with all those grubby little people with their red baseball caps and their Republican voting. I know that the governor of California is eager to pick a fight with every red state in the country, especially Florida. This is what's happening on his watch under the policies of his left-wing pals and allies. One more example on this, Minneapolis. And actually, there was a very similar story to this out of Chicago. What do these places all have in common? New York, California, Mini, Chicago. These are all deep blue places with very progressive leaders. We told you the Chicago version of this story on the program not too long ago. Here's now the headline. Minneapolis neighborhoods, quote, crowdfunding for extra police patrols amid crime spike. So rioters burned down a lot of the city a couple summers ago while the powers that be kind of justified it, mostly peaceful. Kamala Harris was out there tweeting a link to donate to get the rioters out of jail. That was the moment. That's where the winds were blowing, and a lot of Democrats didn't want to speak up against violence and rioting. And then the shell of the city that remains, there has been a huge spike in crime. The city council voted to abolish and reimagine the police department. And that was such a disaster with funds reduced, with crime spiking, a ton of people left. Then they had to, in a panic, hire cops from surrounding areas to come in and do the job. Because it, I mean, can you believe it? You pull the police out of Minneapolis and you start cutting their budgets in the middle of a crime wave and things get worse. I mean, these people were like, oh gosh, we couldn't have... Coming. What absolute reckless idiots. So they had to spend a whole bunch of new money to hire part-time cops from other communities to come in. It hasn't been enough. The crime continues. And now you have individual neighborhoods banding together to raise private money to pay police to basically do overtime moonlighting to protect them. Same thing happened in Chicago. By the way, these are well-to-do neighborhoods that can afford this sort of thing. In Chicago and Minneapolis, the other neighborhoods, oh, well, tough luck. Aren't you happy that the progressives are in charge? I don't know how long it's going to take for example after example like this to sink in and for people to make major changes. But crime should be a top tier issue in November. It needs to be. And I think the message is starting to seep in, which is why you see the left-wing DA getting recalled in San Francisco. Right, Boudin, he's out. Hopefully Gascon next in Los Angeles. This stuff can't happen soon enough. Now, when we come back, 
another form of lawlessness that we will discuss. I mentioned it today. We were talking about it on television, America's Newsroom. Dana Perino had me on. We will talk about that, play some sound. When we come back, it's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We believe it's shameful uh, that uh, that uh, some governors are using uh, migrants as a political tool, uh, as a political play, uh, when uh, we should be uh, making sure that we're doing everything that we can uh, to help uh, to help folks who are coming into this process uh, uh, in a uh, legal way. I'm Guy Benson. That was White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre calling it shameful that governors down at the border are playing politics, supposedly, with immigration. With Governor Abbott, for example, shipping some of the illegal immigrants across the border, unlawfully, up to Washington, D.C. Shameful, says the White House. Not shameful that this is happening. Not shameful that the crisis is completely out of control. Not shameful that there are 50,000 gotaways a month. She kind of pretended that the people that we're talking about are not illegal immigrants at the very end there. That's wrong. I would love follow-up questions, specific follow-up questions for these people. What is shameful about it? And why are these other things, the underlying policy failures, not shameful? Honestly, please explain that. I said that yesterday on the show. I said it again today. I'm going to keep saying it. They have these talking points that make no sense. And they get really mad whenever anyone highlights the absolute abject failure of their policy that maybe in their own minds is really not so much of a failure if they are pro-illegal immigration, just like some of these other policies are pro-crime in American cities. We played sound, what was it, last week of the D.C. mayor, Muriel Bowser, grousing about illegal immigrants showing up in her city. Oh, she's like, they're crossing state lines, and maybe the Fed should do something about this. Maybe they should do something about the crisis, not the teeny tiny crisis of a few hundred of these people coming to your city, Washington, D.C., just the slightest taste of what those communities are experiencing every month. I was saying this this morning on TV with Dana Perino. Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, also upset, cut two. This is a real burden on New Yorkers as we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, we already, as I stated, we already have an overburdened shelter system. So now we're talking about... Yeah, and then about, he goes on, he says as, it's going to affect our schools, so on and so forth. It's such a burden. Yeah. Do you not like that, Mr. Mayor? Is that a problem? you have an issue? It's like, welcome to our world, says Texas, says Arizona. It's amazing how these people complain out of one side of their mouth while supporting the policies that are creating the problem, so long as it's not their immediate problem. It's very revealing. Shameful, says the White House. It's just, they're mad about the wrong thing. It's the Guy Benson Show. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thanks for being here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, as always, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, as always, free of charge and on demand. With me now is Heidi Ganahl, who is running to become the next governor of Colorado. And that's a big race out there in the Mountain West. And she's got her eyes on the prize. She wants to unseat Jared Polis, who is the Democratic governor out there. And Heidi, it's good to have you. Thanks, guys. So happy to be on. I've been keeping some tabs on your race and some of the other races out there because my in-laws live in Colorado. And that's a state that was relatively red years back, and it has gotten bluer and bluer through the years. And before we get to the challenge of your race and your opponent, if you could just tell the audience nationally about yourself, your background, and why you think perhaps a national audience should care about the Colorado gubernatorial race. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate it. I am, I like to say, I'm a mom on a mission. I have four beautiful kids ranging in age from 10 to 26, and I'm a business owner. I built the franchise Camp Bow Wow. So if you have a dog, you may know about Camp Bow Wow. We're all over the country. And I'm also on the University of Colorado Regent Board. So we oversee the university system. So I've been very active in fighting for free speech on college campuses, bringing civics back, and getting the cost down for our kids in Colorado. I'm also super passionate about school choice. I moved my kids across town so that they could have a better education. And I want every mom to have that same dad, to have that same opportunity in our state. But man, Colorado has gone downhill so much in the last four years. I mean, just our kids are in crisis. We have one of the highest suicide rates, one of the highest drug addiction rates for kids. 60% of them cannot read, write, or do math at grade level. And crime is skyrocketing here. Homelessness is out of control. And Jared Polis has decimated our oil and gas industry, just to name a few things. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to get to there. I'm also interested, because this is related, it seems like between yourself Heidi Ganahl, who's running for governor in Colorado, and then Joe O'Day, who's the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. You guys will be at the top of the ticket in that state, in those two key statewide races. And based on not just guesswork, but their actual spend, it seems like the Democrats really didn't want to face either of you. And they spent a fair amount of money trying to boost sort of kookier people out there that they felt like they would have a better chance of beating in the fall They plowed millions into the Senate race, for example, and that's been traced back to Chuck Schumer. And it seems like ultimately they failed. The ticket that they did not want for the Republicans is the ticket now that they're going to have to face. I find that interesting, and you must too. 
I do. It was quite entertaining when all of a sudden we started seeing these ads pour in, sponsored by Democrats, helping my Republican opponent in the primary. And obviously they didn't want to run against me in the general election. So I believe Jared Polis and the Democrats worked through the Democrat Governors Association and Jared Polis's own organization that he founded here in Colorado Progress Now to put $3 million in our primary to help my opponent. But we beat that back. And I think this is really important for everyone across this country to understand what's happening because it's happening in states all over the place. And we're the only ones so far, Joe and I, that have been able to beat it back. I hope some other states are going to get through it, like Michigan and Illinois, but it's happening everywhere. And the reason people should care about why we need to keep Colorado um, or win back the governorship and win that U.S. Senate seat is because the things that they're starting here in Colorado, it's like a, a, a testing state for other programs, like to spread it around the country, whether it was um, some of the stuff that's happening in the classroom, the politicization of the classrooms, or the fentanyl crisis. We have the second highest fentanyl overdose rate in the country, or the New Green Deal here, how they're decimating oil and gas, and we're sitting on $5 an hour gas. And then the final one is we have one of the most extreme abortion laws in the country here that was just signed by Jared Polis. It's okay to have an abortion until birth here in Colorado. Yeah, it's just, I mean, really disgusting to me. And I do want to get in, you've name-checked a couple of these issues, and the juxtaposition, the contrast between yourself and Governor Polis and then Senator Bennett and Joe O'Day on the Senate side. And I see Mitch McConnell was in the state, made a surprise appearance at a fundraiser, uh, saying we're all in on that Colorado race. So obviously nationally the party thinks that you know these are potentially winnable, if uphill, battles. Before we get to the Democrats and to your opponent, I do have to ask you about your running mate. I know there's been a controversy out there involving uh, him being removed from a redistricting committee because he had put up some posts on social media that were election conspiracy related. I know that that's been sort of a news cycle that you and your campaign have been dealing with just recently. What can you tell us about that? Because that might concern some folks. Like, is, is this sort of, you know, an own goal here early on when the focus ought to be on Polis? Well, Guy, it's a bunch of baloney, and it's made up by the media. The media here in Colorado, the mainstream media, is just um, – I mean, they work for Jared Polis, basically. And so they're trying to upend an amazing pick we have for lieutenant governor. Danny Moore is a wonderful entrepreneur. He's a Navy veteran of many decades, and he's a very, very um, important and strong leader in our business communities, also African-American. And you know, that combined with his veteran background just makes him a great pick and a great leader, a great partner for me in running the state. And so I think Jared Polis is, uh, you know, trying to come up with other ways to attack him so that um, they can avoid um, the public knowing what a great partner he is. So, you know, Danny and I are going to do everything we can to win back our state. And we had a great launch party just a couple hours ago with, um, you know, a couple hundred people. And everyone's very excited about our ticket. So you're not concerned about those social media posts? Nope, not at all. Danny's addressed those, and so have I. And we both accept that Joe Biden, um, unfortunately, is our duly elected president, and we've got to do what we can to change that. And we're more focused on Jared Polis and changing um, you know, him being our governor. I truly yep. believe that Colorado is ready for a change. So I want to talk first about schools and COVID, I think, again, sitting halfway across the country and watching from a distance, 
Jared Polis got some credit about being, let's just say, less insane than a lot of his fellow Democrats in other states on COVID-related policies, shutdowns, lockdowns, that sort of thing. I think it's indisputable that he was better than, you know, Gavin Newsom or, you know, you look at New York, Connecticut, Illinois, some of these other places. And so people are saying, you know, this is kind of a moderate guy who was better than some of the others. I think that's a very low bar on that issue. But as you note, even though I agree at least with some of the stuff that he did, I think still belatedly better than some of these other people around the country, he has not been a moderate at all on a number of other related questions. And I wonder how you plan to try to thread the needle there because he's seen kind of as business friendly and a little bit more moderate on economic issues and not sort of, you know, nuts on the sort of the COVID lockdown extremism stuff. How do you bust through some of the record that he's created for himself to try to expose him on other issues that you think he's vulnerable on? Well, Guy, he has a great PR team who likes to, you know, create a narrative that he's a moderate. There's nothing moderate about Jared Polis. He is totally aligned with Joe Biden on so many issues, like the New Green Deal and decimating oil and gas production here in Colorado, like the most extreme abortion law in the country, like defunding the police and decriminalizing fentanyl here. So we have the second highest overdose rate in the country. And our kids, our kids are in crisis. 60% of our kids cannot read, write, or do math at grade level. Only 5% of Hispanic and black kids in Denver public schools can read at grade level. And he's been in charge for a while, and he could have changed a lot of these things. No one thinks Colorado is better off today than they were four years ago, no matter what he likes to say on the mainstream media. So we've got to call out his record. He can't run from it when people see it in their pocketbooks. They see it in their kids' eyes when they're struggling. He did all of his dirty work through his boards, his commissions, his bureaucrats, and he's grown the size of government by almost 25% here in Colorado. It's just taken over our lives. And he's one of these sort of very, very wealthy leftists who have gone out of their way to import California into Colorado. And unfortunately, they've done a pretty good job of it. For everyone involved, they've, uh, I guess, in their case, they've increased their power. They've moved the state to the left. That was their whole goal. There was a book written about it called The Blueprint that lays out what they did. He was central in all of that. Now he's the governor of the state. One of the other issues that you mentioned was crime. And we did our whole opening monologue in this hour about crime in California, in New York, in Minneapolis, in Chicago. And unfortunately, you have to add Denver to that list. Talk about crime as an issue in your state right now. Oh, my goodness. It's terrible. Everywhere you go, not just in Denver. And we've won some ridiculous awards in the last year or two. Number one in property crime. Number one in auto theft. Number one in bank robberies. I mean, one of the highest rises of violent crime in the country. Here in Colorado, we're not talking about Chicago. We're talking about Denver and Colorado. It's terrible. And it's because of bad policy that Jared Polis and the Democrats have put in place because they're following Biden's lead and the Democrats lead around the country to defund police and decriminalize drugs and keep, just let bad guys stay out of jail. I, it's not working very well here in our state. You also mentioned the issue of abortion. And I understand that there are a lot of very passionately pro-life conservatives in Colorado. There's also a lot of libertarian, left-leaning, pro-choice people in the state of Colorado. You're trying to win as many of all of those votes as you possibly can. Same with O'Day for Senate. I watched an interview. In fact, I was on the panel 
on Fox News Sunday a few months ago. I was in the green room watching the interview. Shannon Bream, my colleague at Fox, was interviewing Polis, and she was pushing him a little bit on the question of abortion and the new law that you referenced out in Colorado, which is one of the most sort of heinous extreme laws imaginable, one of the most sort of left-wing radical laws in the whole country. And she was trying to get him to admit that there are no limitations whatsoever on abortion, including in the third trimester, all the way up through the minute of birth. And he basically, by omission, admitted it. He was ducking and weaving and making it all sound sort of inoffensive. But because he wasn't explicitly saying no, clearly the answer was yes, that is true. And I just wonder how you try to frame that issue, because you're trying to win pro-choice votes. You have to win some pro-choice votes in that state to win statewide. I would argue that what Polis has embraced, unfortunately, is what, to a large extent, the National Democratic Party has embraced, which is something that goes far beyond being pro-choice and embracing something so extreme that if you look at polling, most pro-choice people don't even agree with something that's much closer to pro-abortion. How do you to prosecute that issue because you know he's going to try to paint you guys as the extremist on this guy there is nothing more extreme than thinking that we should be allowed to abort a baby up until birth that is insane as a mom of four kids and as a woman i just can't think of anything worse and i don't think the people of colorado really understood what was going on when that legislation was passed so i can be a voice for women and I can be a voice as a mom and call him out for what he's doing. Yeah, and he's going to try to explain from a male perspective. Like they always say, oh, uh, men shouldn't have an opinion on abortion unless they agree with the pro-choice side. Then you can have whatever opinion you want. It's sort of like, you know, pro-life people generally should pipe down. And I think it could be interesting to have him as a, as a male trying to lecture you, a woman, on women's rights. I know it's coming. That's what he's going to try to do. But you guys out there have nominated a female. Heidi Ganahl is my guest here. She's running for governor out in Colorado. And it'll be a very interesting race, that race and the Senate race that I keep referencing with Joe O'Day, literally the ticket on the Republican side that the Democrats spent millions of dollars trying to avoid. And if Mitch McConnell thinks these races are competitive, he's a smart, political, savvy actor. I think that we should pay attention to that. And in a wave year, you never know what might happen. And this could be a wave year because the failures of the Democrats in Washington, D.C., are very similar to some of the failures of Democrats at the state level, including Governor Polis out there in Denver and in Colorado. Heidi, always appreciate it. There was this crazy, weird rumor months ago that I have no idea how it started that I was going to run for Colorado governor. Um, And it was just like this wild thing. People started calling me, calling my husband about it. I was like, I've never lived there. I'm, I'm ineligible to run. And I think I tweeted because I, we, we joked about it here on the show. One of our listeners made actually a very good fake campaign, uh, you know, little graphic for me. I thought it was a cool logo if I ever were to run. I'm not from there. And I ended the whole thing and the joking that we did on the show with Go Heidi. So here you are as the nominee of the party. It's great to have you here. And I look forward to watching your race. Well, thanks, Guy, and I would love to have you out on the campaign trail if you want to come (laughs) see what it's like. I need your help. I need everybody's help, and 
honestly, Guy, we've got to stop Polis here in Colorado because he plans to run for president in 24 and do these horrible things to the rest of the country like he's done to Colorado. So I need everybody's help. It's HeidiForGov.com, and I can't wait to take Colorado back and make it the wild, wild west and the place of opportunity again. And it is such a gorgeous state on top of all of it. Heidi, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Guy. Have a great day. We will step aside, come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, President Biden has COVID. We talked about that yesterday. He's doing okay. Apparently, he made an appearance virtually just minutes ago talking about the economy and other issues. And he's doing okay, and we wish him a speedy recovery Something that we talked about yesterday was this weird cancer claim that he made during the climate change speech in Massachusetts. We played the soundbite. We'll play it again here. Cut 27. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. It had to put on their windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. So that was a head-scratcher. I was trying to make sense of it when he said it a few days ago. Then we talked more about it yesterday. I was trying to figure out, to sort of like translate what, what he was trying to say here because the explanation just didn't make any sense. The oil slick, the windshield wipers. Then they said, oh, well, he had some skin cancer, non-melanoma moles removed a few years ago. I'm like, well, what relevance does that have? It's like they were, as I said, trying to backfill some kind of an excuse to make sense out of what he offered there. And my colleagues at townhall.com had a really clever, really astute catch. Here's a story that Joe Biden told from the presidential podium at an event back in April of this year, just a few months ago. Let's see if this sounds familiar. Cut 28. It came in the fall. This is the God's truth. And you get in the car, and there's a little frost on the window, turn on the windshield wiper, there'd be an oil slick. Not a joke. I have asthma, and 80% of the people who, in fact, we grew up with have asthma. Asthma. They're saying, no joke. God's truth. Same story, same imagery, windshield wipers, oil slick, I have asthma, all these people have asthma. Did he think in his brain of that story while he was giving his remarks on climate change and just insert cancer? Instead of asthma, because maybe there's something to the asthma story. The cancer story made absolutely no sense on any level, and the explanations that they've given have made even less sense. I think he just melded these stories together and conflated asthma with cancer, leading him to this week say that he has cancer, which he doesn't. I think that might be the the solved riddle here, the answer to this confusion which is not exactly confidence-inspiring, but I think that's the reality. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show on its way. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. 
podcast is free and on demand at your fingertips every day. Still to come, Andy McCarthy and Todd Pyro. A Fox News alert starts this middle hour with the Dow closing down today 137 points in the red, closing out at 31,899. Joining us now is Corey DeAngelis, Director of School Choice at the Reason Foundation, which is a free market think tank. You can visit them at reason.org. He's also a Ph.D. researcher. And, Corey, good to have you back here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So you have a new op-ed out this week at foxnews.com, and you're making the case that school choice, your cause, is winning, but the teachers' union empire is striking back. So set that up for us. In what ways, in your mind, is school choice winning, and in what ways are these unions now fighting back? I mean, the teachers' unions overplayed their hand over the past couple of years and awakened a sleeping giant. Parents, these parents have woken up. They're pushing back. They're essentially a new special interest group in town, and they're winning. We're winning on elections when it comes to school choice candidates, but we're also getting school choice policy passed. Think about 2021. We're calling it the year of school choice because 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. Then in 2022, we had the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history. Just look over at Arizona. They just passed what's called a universal education savings account. Ducey signed it into law uh, earlier this month. And every single family, regardless of income, will be able to take their children's state-funded taxpayer-funded education dollars to the education providers of their choosing, whether that's a public school, a private school, a charter school, or home-based education option. So Arizona just cemented itself as the number one state for educational freedom by far. And this is the, the gold standard of education policy. And the, the wins don't stop there. I mean, we just had a Supreme Court victory, Carson B. Macon out of Maine, uh, further cementing l- religious liberties and making it clear that uh, school choice does not run afoul of the U.S. Constitution, and, and, and uh, our religious liberties are protected as well after, after that case. And then now, obviously, since we're winning so much, the teachers' union empire is striking back. They're, they're shaking in their boots. They'll do whatever they can to try to fight against educational freedom. They want to protect their monopoly. They don't want families to be able to leave their government-run schools. Of course, that's how mon- monopolies act. Uh, but one way they do it is through the courts. So they'll file lawsuits. Uh, one way to do it at the at the uh, you, the um, national level is they'll try to say that that school choice is a separation of church and state issue, which obviously the word separation of church and state aren't in the U.S. Constitution. Right. And school choice programs don't establish a government uh, a state religion. Of course not. And it, for the. And look, school choice doesn't run afoul of of the U.S. Constitution or or violate the Establishment Clause for the same reason that Pell Grants or the Head Start pre-K programs or Medicaid dollars don't violate the Establishment Clause because the money goes to the families and you can choose between religious and non-religious providers. So that's that's clear, uh, but that doesn't stop the teachers' unions from from fighting every step of the way. In Arizona, which I just uh, talked about, this is the biggest U.S. uh, victory on school choice ever. Of course, the unions are thinking about uh, trying to file a, a lawsuit against it, and they're even uh, doing a ballot initiative drive to try to get signatures um, to try to trap kids in, in their failing government schools, which is despicable after we're winning so much. So many families are clamoring for these alternatives. It's super popular, but uh, look, they they want to cement their monopoly. 
Yeah, and they've sort of skated for a very long time, and that's not really happening anymore for some of the reasons that you just explained. I think a lot of it goes back to the double issue of school closures, where you had teachers' unions, especially Randy Weingarten and her group, basically arguing through their actions that school, public school instruction, is not essential. It was more important to have teachers at home not teaching students in person during COVID, even when the data and the science didn't support that, they actually had the science and the data altered. They stomped into the process and and manipulated the science with the Biden administration using their political clout to do it, to keep more kids out of schools for much longer than the data actually had ever suggested ought to be the case based on, you know, actual outcomes and results. That to me was a huge scandal. And so when you have, Unions taking the side against students and against teaching and against open schools, that's going to get people's attention. And then when a lot of kids were at home doing these failed virtual Zoom classes, more parents got to see more of what was being taught to them on the screen. And they weren't thrilled with the racialization of stuff and sort of this sort of left-wing social project experimentation, in some cases on very young students. That combination of factors helped Glenn Youngkin win the governorship in Virginia, a state that Biden had won by 10 points. Youngkin won it by almost three points, two to three points. That's a huge swing. You would think that that might be a wake-up call for the unions, or maybe they would say, let's let's maybe cool it on some of this stuff. seems like they're just doubling down. Terry McAuliffe in that race, his last rally that he held of the governor's race was with Randy Weingarten in Arlington, Virginia, in a very deep blue place. He lost that race, and yet... On they go. They just had the big AFT uh, conference. Val Demings, we talked about this earlier in the week. She's running for Senate against Marco Rubio in Florida. She was just heaping praise, lavishing praise on Randy Weingarten. And something that we wrote about at townhall.com, Corey, and I talked about on this show, was probably some pretty bad news for Randy and company that arrived, interestingly and ironically this week, in the form of a poll that they themselves paid for. They commissioned this poll in education, and I cannot imagine the results are what they were hoping to see, and yet they are what they are, and you've been talking a lot about them. Yeah, I mean, look, the teachers' unions just took a massive L with that uh, self-commissioned poll. I'd say this is an epic self-own for Randy Weingarten. They do really don't like the results. It doesn't look good for the Democrats in particular, who the Randy Weingarten Union, uh, 99.99% of Randy's campaign contributions from the AFT go to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. And in her own poll, Republicans are up on the issue of education by one point. And look, I mean, you might say, oh, this is close. You know, Republicans should be up by more. But historically, Democrats have been just destroying the Republicans on education. For example, yep. a 2017 Gallup poll found that Republicans uh, were down on education by 19 points just in 2017. Now you have Randy Weingarten's own poll finding that the Republicans are up. And oh, by the way, R Randy keeps tweeting every day that it's, it's you know, Glenn Youngkin and DeSantis and the Republicans who are politicizing the classroom. Well, <laughs> her own poll found the opposite result by five points. People were more likely to say that Democrats were politicizing the classroom too much as opposed to Republicans. And the respondents in these likely, uh, these likely voters in the battleground states said that over-politicization of public schools was the 
the number one problem in public education. But that's not all. There was another L that was just served to the teachers unions just the other day. A poll came out from Democrats for Education Reform, another left-leaning organization, finding Republicans up by three points on the issue of education. So this is a seismic shift in support towards Republicans on education. Look, people thought that, you know, Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia was just a blip, you know, because the school closures were so recent, the, uh, all of that stuff going on in Virginia with the schools was so recent that, you know, it was just a one-time thing. But now we're seeing that this is a longer-term trend with these two left-leaning polls finding Republicans up on the issue of education, which is a startling finding. The Democrats should have alarm bells going off in their heads because the Democrats have been up by double digits for decades on education. Um, yep. So this is a sea change in support for the Republicans. And if the Republicans are smart, they'll lean into this. They'll follow yeah. the playbook of Glenn Youngkin. They won't avoid education anymore. And look, Democrats are in a catch-22. Why do you think Terry McAuliffe had Randy Weingarten stumping for him the night before election? Because he didn't want to make his boss, the unions, mad. Uh, so the Republicans can make a Democrat make that decision between the parents and the unions, the Republicans are in a win-win situation. Don't let this opportunity go. The GOP, if they want a red wave in November, this is the way to do it. Glenn Youngkin cracked the code in Virginia. And look, you have the golden opportunity to be the parents' party here if you just uh, move forward and follow Glenn Youngkin's lead. Yeah, I want to talk more about that in just a second. I would also just point out that the polling you were referring to, one of them has the Republicans up one, the other one has the Republicans up three. The fact that they're up at all is astounding, given all the history that you laid out. Usually they would get crushed on the issue. That has all changed in very short order because of the things that parents are seeing. It's been so brazen, so in your face, that people can't help but notice. And in that same poll with the Battleground voters, they ask, for example, would you vote for a candidate who is focused on teaching kids the basics, like core curriculum, or teaching kids more racial stuff? And it was a 30-point gap. People don't want that. It's the ideological left-wing project that some activists are obsessed with, and the teachers' unions are you know, on board for it. It is diametrically opposed to what most battleground and swing state voters want. And there's a little bubble in the left-wing activist community that the politicians are in, that the media's in, that the unions are in, that these activists are in. And then there's everyone else in the country. And they are so far out of step, it does create this very significant opportunity for the GOP. And I have to tell you, Corey, obviously just on, on policy alone, the Republicans are so much better than the Democrats on school choice and some of these education issues. It's night and day, and I'm glad that the Democrats are paying a price for what the unions and they have done over the last couple of years. I am a little bit worried that because there are so many other issues out there, you know, from inflation to the economy and that big stuff, crime, the border crisis, the Supreme Court, you know, the abortion that just came up. It just seems like there's so much stuff out there that – Perhaps education, which was front and center in Virginia and even in New Jersey, where there was almost a big upset as well last year, that was a top tier issue. And I'm wondering and I'm concerned it might be relegated to a second tier issue this coming November. And I think Republicans ought to be doing everything they can to make sure education is right up there with inflation, economy, crime, education. I think that suite of issues is how they can win, but it kind of feels like it's a little bit in the background right now. Am I missing something here, or do you share that concern? About 30 seconds, Corey. 
Yeah, well, look, it, was, it wasn't in the background in Virginia because Glenn Youngkin was smart and he leaned into it. He started to understand that his opponent had a weak spot, which was coming out against parental rights and education, particularly after the past couple of years when parents are awake more than ever, is a form of political suicide. We just yep. saw in Texas last night someone running for lieutenant governor as a Democrat said that p parents who wanted vouchers are, quote, unquote, vultures. That's going to be an even bigger campaign blunder than Terry McAuliffe. It's worse to call parents vultures than saying that they shouldn't be telling schools what they should teach. Yeah, I mean, both totally bad. agree. And there's there's an opportunity here. The material is all sitting there. The Republicans have to take it, take advantage, and go on offense because there are victories to be won on this issue, as we've seen, and I hope we will continue to see. Corey DeAngelis of the Reason Foundation, a warrior for school choice. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. If you're listening on the live broadcast, bumper song is Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar, an 80s classic. You know it. I saw this story in USA Today. Apparently, that singer, Pat Benatar, has announced... She will no longer sing. She refuses to sing Hit Me With Your Best Shot anymore because of gun violence. Quote, you have to draw the line, she says. And I had two reactions to this at first. Just like incredulous scoffing. Number one, I've listened to that song many times. It's obviously not about shooting a gun. We all understand that, right? Every single person understands that. It's about dating, right? Like the battles of love or whatever. Hit me with your best shot. Fire away. It's not literal. It has nothing to do with guns. It's not even punching, which would be a little bit more of a literal translation, perhaps, of the imagery. It has nothing to do with that. Just how stupid. In what possible world does Pat Benatar no longer singing a song not about guns contribute in any way to reducing gun violence? I just don't understand how the synapses in someone's brain work that way. I wonder if Pat Benatar will refuse any dirty, blood-stained, in her own framing... Royalty payments when this song is played. Will she reject the money from her violent song or not really? I'm going to guess not really. But also, if you're someone with, I would say, diminishing relevance and you have only a small handful of hits, insisting that for the rest of your life you will never sing one of them because of a completely made-up connotation in order to morally preen and virtue signal in a way that means nothing to anybody and will achieve nothing. I mean, it's an odd choice. But it's one that she has made. It's a free country. And we can keep playing the song and enjoying the song and realizing that has nothing to do with guns. I also put on Twitter, does she have any other song? Because to me, this is her most famous song. Several people pointed out that she had others that, yes, I have heard of. For example, Love is a Battlefield. That's a big one. Uh, excuse me, Battlefield? Hello? That sounds extremely violent. It is time for Pat Benatar to boycott Love is a Battlefield. Because Battlefield, I mean, there's not only guns, bombs, other weapons that are much more destructive. 
than just a handgun, for example. I can't imagine that in good conscience, based on her own standard, she could be singing about battlefields unless she wants more blood on her hands to incite more violence under this totally insane mindset that she's announced to the world. How about We Belong? Another one of her hits. I looked up some of the lyrics. I've heard that song. It's famous. She talks about cutting to the bone in that song. Wow. Homicidal. Absolutely homicidal. I think to stop knife violence, Pat Benatar needs to cancel herself, honestly, completely. It's time for Pat Benatar to cancel Pat Benatar. All she sings about is gun violence, war, and knives. If you look at her top three hits. Haven't you done enough damage, Pat? How do you sleep at night? Obviously, I'm being facetious. It's absolutely ridiculous. Those songs are bangers. Although banger might be problematic. Think about the sound that a gun makes. Bang. Oh, uh uh-oh. My bad. Ugh. It's exhausting. At least in this case, it's a self-cancellation to a certain extent. Not a stupid mob, although she's preemptively caving to a mob, it feels like. And once again, if this means anything, if she actually believes any of this in whatever's happening in her head, she should reject the money. It's easy to do this totally empty nonsense if you're still going to cash in on the music. And if she's still going to cash in on the music, she doesn't even believe what she's saying. Which I suspect to be the case. We live in a very stupid time. And this is one of the signposts on the road to moronic, inane foolishness. So, congratulations, Pat. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for your service. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show. Happy Friday. Thanks for being here. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com, as it always is. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us on social media. With us now from our New York headquarters is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books, including Ball of Collusion. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you. Guy, great to be with you. Let's talk about last night, the January 6th hearing. It was in primetime, the second primetime hearing. I was at dinner, then was supposed to be getting on a plane. That didn't pan out. I'll talk more about that later on. But I missed it. I followed some of the reaction on social media. I know you have a column coming out this weekend about what you saw and what stood out to you last night. If you could maybe preview some of your thoughts for us, what was important, what wasn't, your overall assessment of primetime round two. Well, Guy, I've thought for a long time that the committee was really conducting the impeachment investigation that Congress should have conducted, that the House under Democratic leadership should have conducted 18 months ago. Uh, And I thought it was ironic that last night's final – well, I guess it turns out now not to be the final performance because, as you say, they're going to come back in September. But last night's big uh, primetime – Spectacle was about dereliction of duty, and I think what they ended up uh, establishing or illustrating 
was all information that not only we have known for a long time, but that every bit of important information that came out was known 18 months ago. I wrote a column 18 months ago, almost 18 months ago to to the day, um, saying the impeachment that Trump deserved and arguing that uh, the obvious article of impeachment that should have been brought was dereliction of duty based on Trump's uh, complete being completely AWOL while the seat of government was under attack and based on pretty much everything that the committee laid out uh, last night. So it's I guess it's and I would argue any worse than AWOL, but yeah, point taken. yeah, I, I, I'm you know, just trying to summarize it succinctly. Sure. I, I quite agree with you. I mean, it was appalling, but, uh, you know, we could we could go ver- uh, chapter and verse. But the point is um, the reason that this is now an issue is because they they rushed a shoddy impeachment 18 months ago and drafted an article of impeachment that didn't match up with Trump's worst behavior. They made it easy for Senate Republicans to dodge the whole thing by saying, you know, this this legal argument that a non-incumbent president was not subject to impeachment, which I don't think uh, bears up uh, when you look at it uh, hard under the law. But it would have been much harder for Republicans to do that if the if the House had done the kind of work that was available to to be done back then, because, again, we knew all these things back then. I think it would have been much harder for them to to acquit him uh, if they had done a good investigation and made their main charge this dereliction of duty. So in a sense, they were derelict uh, in their responsibilities of doing a good, competent job of an impeachment investigation and, and returning an article that matched the evidence. You know, Andy, as I think about some of this stuff and I look at that evidence, I still feel kind of like I did on the 6th and 7th, let's say, of January of last year. I know there has been new information. I'm not disputing that in these hearings. I'm not as completely dismissive of this process as some other conservatives are. But I think overall, the general gist of what happened is exactly what appeared to be the case in real time, which is very bad. But I'm not sure it's necessarily moving public opinion all that much because it's kind of what we all understood to be the case all along with a few more details filled in here and there. And I'm, again, not saying that's not important, but that's my overall sense of it. Yeah, I think that's right, Guy. I mean, to give the committee their due, I think their main objective is to try to establish that Trump is unfit for the presidency. Now, you know, I have a cynical or a more cynical take on this than I think many people do, because I I think that's Liz Cheney and to some extent Adam Kinzinger's objective uh, in the sense that they want people to realize, particularly Republicans, to realize that he's unfit and not make him the nominee for 2024. By contrast, I think that the Democrats would like to run against him uh, and think that raising his profile uh, is helpful to them. So I think both sides, both of the Republican and Democrat contingents on this unanimously anti-Trump committee want to bring Trump front and center to our attention, but they have different reasons for it. Yeah, their Uh, motives are different. Yeah. And and so, you know, I I think if that's what you're you know, if that's where you're coming from, to my mind, at least Liz Cheney is ahead because I think over time you're seeing Trump's support. It's not happening fast enough for my taste. But it, it, you see it eroding among Republicans, and I think there's more of a realization that even if you like Trump 
and you want to um, mainly make a nod to all the good that he did when he was in office, you still have to come to terms with the fact that he can't win a national election, which is why the Democrats would like to run against him. Uh, And I think she's making that case, uh, even though it may, you know, it may it probably will cost her her own seat. Yeah. Uh, but she's doing something that's very admirable in that sense. Andy, I want to ask you about another story that we talked about a little bit earlier here. The confrontation slash attack or assault on Lee Zeldin, who is the Republican running for governor in the state of New York. He was campaigning, giving a speech, and a guy got up on stage next to him with some sort of like brass knuckles, shiv type thing, and tugged at him, and and Zeldin sort of went down. The guy was apprehended. Everyone, thank goodness, was fine, but this was an ugly incident. It very much looked like political violence playing out on stage at a gubernatorial rally, and obviously that's disturbing unto itself. And then you add into the mix... The fact that this guy who got up there and did this was charged and then immediately released under these bail laws that Zeldin is actually very critical of and campaigning against. I mean, I just don't even know what to say where you have and it actually reminds me of the Kavanaugh thing where there was an assassination plot against him. And yes, there were charges filed and all of that. But in terms of news media interest, there was virtually zero after even the first day they barely covered it. And here we have someone who attacked a candidate for office and a sitting member of Congress, and he's back out on the street in a matter of minutes, it feels like. This is insanity. Yeah, it sure is. Thank God Lee Zeldin is okay, Guy, because I I don't want to be misunderstood here. There's nothing fortunate about what happened yesterday. But in terms of the public usefulness of of this episode – People need to understand this is happening in New York every day. It's coming to people's attention today because Lee Zeldin, besides being a United States congressman, is running for governor. And this happened basically in broad daylight at a press covered event in front of a bunch of people. So it's a powerful image and it um, and it and it communicates to people what's happening here. But people should understand this is happening every day. And the reason Lee Zeldin was able to predict with confidence that the guy who did this would be out, mainly, basically be out on bail, not even on bail, he was released on his own recognizance, he'd be out before the police even finished the paperwork on his arrest, he was able to confidently predict that because it was a function of the laws that they've changed in New York to make it so that you can't hold dangerous people who obviously should be incarcerated, you can't hold them uh, in detention. And it's unbelievable in the sense, particularly, that New York was the trailblazer in the record plunging of crime that we had in the United States from the mid-1990s until about you know, 2015, 2016. Uh, so we know how to drive crime down. You have, to, you have to project that the laws are going to be enforced, and you have to make it understood that people who violate the laws are going to be punished. And we in New York now have have basically created exactly the opposite impression. Andy, let's break. When we come back, I want to have a polite disagreement with you, something I saw you tweet. I have a different view. We'll get into that right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Andy McCarthy, last question, different topic. I saw you tweeted this yesterday, and I responded respectfully but in disagreement with 
an editorial, a house editorial from the editorial board at National Review. You're a part of it. This was unsigned. You didn't write it. It was a collaborative effort going out under the byline of the editors. It was about the marriage bill that passed the House with almost 50 Republican votes now being considered at some point by the Senate. There's a question of whether or not Republicans will furnish 10-plus votes to get the thing passed. It looks like they very well might. I'm in favor of this bill, even though I think it's redundant. I don't think Obergefell or same-sex marriage is going anywhere. It's been legal for years in this country. And based on what the Supreme Court has indicated and not indicated, I don't think that they would even have four votes to take up a challenge to Obergefell if they wanted to, some of them. I've made that point on the air previously. But just in case, because everyone's talking about Roe and Dobbs, I have no issue with the way the bill was framed. I think it is a sensible thing. I think that this issue is largely settled, unlike abortion, and 70-plus percent of the country is now in favor of same-sex marriage. National Review editorialized against this bill. I think tried to make a few fair points, but overall I found the argument unpersuasive. I'm just trying to see – I'm not sure if you fully endorse the editorial or what you feel about it, but I heard from a number of right-leaning gay people and others – saying, you know, this is a publication, you're friends with these people, you've had some bylines there, and they would prefer your marriage, meaning my marriage, not exist. And how does that make you feel? And I'm able to separate things out, and I rarely take things personally, but I would just wonder, how would you respond to a challenge like that, especially in a day and age where it feels like this is kind of an ancillary issue in a way that it wasn't for a long time? See, Guy, I... I would like to not care about this issue. I, I, I'm sort of a live and let live person. I mean, I have a, I, I have a personal sense of what I think marriage is, um, and I don't question uh, at all um, the love and the dignity in a marriage like your marriage, for example. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, I have a different idea of what the concept is, and that doesn't mean I'm against. You know, all of the legal attendments of marriage being being uh, assigned to a different context than the traditional context. My problem with the bill and my problem with having to care about something where, which I prefer just to ignore is the provisions that enable and empower the attorney general and the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division to file aggressive lawsuits – and create a private right of action because what I sense is that it's not enough for people to say, I want to live and let live. I have my own idea. You have your own idea, um, and we can we can coexist. We can agree to disagree, uh, and if everybody was coming from that same place, I think that would be fine, but that's not where – people are coming from. It's true, what, although it's where I am coming from, right? And I value yeah, my but, marriage and yeah, the but, rights that I have. Yeah, but you don't have a $30 billion budget, and you're not going to target I every wish. single person. Yeah, right. You and me both. <laughs> um, but you're not going to target everybody who disagrees with you as a matter of principle, even if they don't – even if they're not in any way impinging on your right to live your life the way that you choose to live it. You're not you're not the Justice Department. Yeah, I get that. I just I just feel like those of us who are in same sex marriages and it matters to us and we want to continue that. We want to make sure that other people will have that right far into the future forever. If we disagree on some of the overreach that might happen under certain administrations or from 
people trying to sue businesses out of existence or, you know, going too far on some of the indoctrination in schools or, you know, trans athletes, all of that stuff. I try to draw distinctions among and between those issues. And when I agree with the quote unquote LGBT party line, which I think is uh, doesn't really exist, but there are people who exist kind of to try to enforce it. When I agree with it, I'll say so. When I disagree with it, I do say so. And I just feel like, Andy, I don't know. We're, what, seven years past Obergefell, there have been many, countless marriages among same-sex couples in the United States. And I tend to think that with Obergefell in place and unlikely, very unlikely, to go anywhere, having this dispute is almost academic. But just as a backup plan, I'm not terribly offended by the way that this bill is structured. I think it's pretty moderate and reasonable. And I'd rather have legislators legislating than just relying forever and always on the courts and others to do what they want for them. And so I generally see this as comparatively a welcome development, even though, as I said at the outset, I think it's generally redundant. Can you at least understand where I'm coming from on this? I not only understand, I agree with that. I I, I mean, my problem, Guy, with basically the attack that's been made on Justice Thomas, who said in his opinion in the Dobbs case that, look, if we're going to adopt this new correct, in a constitutional sense, test for substantive due process so that if you're going to have something that's an unenumerated right that gets constitutional status, it's got to be rooted in the tradition and history of the United States and implicit in a system of ordered liberty, then that should be our standard across the board. And we should welcome challenges to these other cases to the extent that that was the standard. I think where he's coming from is gay marriage and all the other the, the cases that had that uh, were referred to in the Dobbs decision would be much more legitimate to my mind whether you agreed or disagreed with them in principle if they were ro- arrived at democratically. And I don't think there's I mean I looked at these statistics uh, a couple of days ago um for same-sex marriage it was um I think a 40-60 split uh, about 10 years before um, Obergefell. By the time of Obergefell, it was a 60-40 split the other way in favor. Now it's 71-72% in favor. Mm -hmm. So this is something that would have had democratic legitimacy. It would not have been something that was decreed by our robe masters who don't actually – are not actually politically accountable – to anyone. And that's the way we're supposed to live in the United States. If something Although, is not in the Constitution, it's supposed to get democratic legitimacy from the people who are the sovereign. Which I would argue this bill would do. Right. This would be the elected members of Congress passing a law that effectively legalizes gay marriage. It's sort of like a reverse DOMA. I think that makes sense. And whether you think Obergefell was rightly or wrongly decided, and obviously Justice Thomas thinks it was wrongly decided, it sounds like you might agree with him, it is the law. It has been in place now for years. A lot of people, including me, depend on that and that right. I'm certainly grateful for the outcome. I understand some of the constitutional arguments in the other direction, but it's also now a fact of life. For so many of us and public support for this institution or the changing of the definition of marriage has increased dramatically, as you pointed out. And so while I think that Obergefell is here to stay, I don't think it's going anywhere. I've built the case why multiple times. I've explained it. If there's going to be something of a backup, 
created by Congress. This seems like a pretty good way to go about it, and I'm in favor of it, just to have it there, just in case, especially if some people who are very worried about it can have their minds put at ease a little bit. And for the purposes of this conversation, this discussion, I just want to say that I'm grateful that we can have a respectful exchange, even though we agree on some things here, disagree on other elements of it. The fact that we can have this without raising our voices and making it angry and personal, I think we need more of this sort of thing in our society, in our discourse, and I really appreciate your ability and willingness to do it with me. Oh, I do too, Guy. Thank you so much. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, Fox News contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour of the program of the broadcast week coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Friday, happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you all along. We are almost to the weekend together. Just an hour to go and a lot to get to here on the show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. If you miss any of the program between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we recommend listening live, especially on our great affiliates, including our brand new one in Youngstown, Ohio this week. Glad to have you guys on board. But if you can't, for whatever reason, there is a podcast for that, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter, and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I saw we have literally one left in the refrigerator, so that might get taken by yours truly this evening. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. That list is really expanding. They are going strong in a lot more places now around the country. You can also order online. Refreshing, delicious, also alcoholic. So please drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And by the way, I should mention on our podcast, which is family friendly, available to all ages, there's bonus Benson on the weekends as well. And if you missed some of our home stretches this week, you missed a lot. So that will be available tomorrow, bonus Benson, plus the bonus content on Sunday as well. All that information and more, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, joining us now for the first time on the program is Todd Pyro. He serves as co-host of Fox & Friends First, weekdays from 4 to 6 a.m., the early shift with Carly Shimkus. And, Todd, it's great to have you here. It's great to be on the show. I'm so excited because obviously we're going to get to this at the end, but you and I both share a love of the great New Jersey Devils. This has been a a long time coming, us united in radio-dumb and (laughs) devil-dumb. Well, we might as well start with it now that you've mentioned it. We're both Devils fans. There's a few other Devils fans in the Fox News universe for sure. I know Joe Concha is another one. And it's been a rough go uh, for the Devils here for a while. Only one playoff appearance in the last, what, decade it feels like, or close to it, after being so good and so dominant when I was growing up, three Stanley Cups. And I keep waiting for this team to improve. And there's a lot of pieces now in place, a lot of young talent. I see another top draft pick this year, number two in the draft, a big free agent signing. 
So out of Tampa. So I'm excited. I feel like goaltending is still going to be a key. And we'll see. If the team is not dramatically, like significantly, noticeably improved this season, I feel like the coach and maybe others will need to go because the wait has been long enough, in my view. I thought the coach should have been gone a while ago and should have been replaced. I I mean, your whole intro there was all D.C., D.C. Barry Trotz was sitting there on the sidelines. Uh, You know, we we could have had Barry Trotz for nothing, you know, and uh, we decided to continue to go with Lindy Ruff. I I mean, look, to your point, when we were growing up, it was a constant life, death, taxes, the devils would be good. You know, that's a lot of it because we had Marty Brodeur. Oh, we yep. also had an amazing infrastructure of a team. And that just show how, shows how important the system is, whether it's hockey, whether it's politics, whether it's anything. And it, it was a constant. You didn't even think about the regular season as being, oh, we could lose a bunch of games in a row because it wouldn't happen. They were the devils. They always won. And now we had 10 years there of nothingness. They have to do something this year. The time for, oh, this year they could be better is, is over. You know, yep. They have too many top draft picks, including number one in the overall draft, to have us twice bad. You know, we got to be good this year. Yep, and I think the, uh, the rebuilding era needs to be over. But you're right, back in the day, and we'll move on from our nostalgia here in a second, Marty between the pipes and then Scott Stevens, Ken Danico, Scott Niedemeyer – that right there is the nucleus of how you win. You've got different guys who can put the puck in the net just enough to win. They were never a high-scoring team, really, but they didn't need to be. It was all about goaltending and defense, and both of those things have been sore spots for the last couple of years. So I'm just glad to have another Devils fan because there's a lot of Rangers fans around, including my dear friend Kennedy, and I like to trash talk, although I don't have much to trash talk about recently, although we still have three cups since their last one. So at least we have that bragging right. Plus, you got some Flyers fans, arguably worse. We'll move on from hockey, Todd. Move on to something else, though, related to your life and personal. My understanding is you just recently returned to the air from paternity leave, and you guys had a daughter on Father's Day. Is that right? In and around Father's Day, obviously, because, you know, people are sick and they like to steal Social Security. We're kind of hedgy about the exact date, but yeah, I posted on Father's Day. Uh, it was around that weekend, let's just say. Um, but let me, for the parents that are listening out there, all right, you have your first. Uh, you're a little bit overwhelmed because it's your first time. and you. But over the course of time, you figure out how to, how to, how to do the baby thing. And then when you have your second, the baby is kind of like, all right, you know, I've done this before, and provided there aren't some – you know, sad, you know, things that you need to worry about that are sort of out of the norm, it's pretty consistent. They are on a three-hour wheel, as I like to call it. They wake up, you have to feed them, you change them, you put them down, and then three hours later, you're back. It's kind of, it's, it's difficult, don't get me wrong, but it's relatively consistent. It's the first one that goes to crazy town once you have the second one that really causes all the issues. We left for the hospital. Our first one was an angel. We came back. She was the devil. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're working on that right now. It's fun. It's, it's hysterical to watch, but it's basically like a rabid alligator in your house. Uh, just like trashing things, tail flapping all over the place, knocking things over, just dropping Wait, things. Wait, did you no just reason. compare your firstborn child to a rabid alligator? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I've done it on multiple <laughs> Fox programming, by the way. Oh, okay. So at some point, somebody It's a regular bit of yours. This is my shtick, yeah. The ra- rabbit alligator known as my firstborn. Uh, but that's it. It's adorable and it's hysterical to watch once you, you know, clean up the house from all the damage. 
So you are on paternity leave for a while. Then you come back on air at Fox, and something happened. Was it last Friday? I know it was recent. I heard about this. Two Fridays this. ago. Two Fridays ago, Fox and Friends does the summer concert series, and there was a musical artist invited. That just raised my eyebrows a little bit. I was excited. Flo Rida in town performing. And by the way, before we get to your little foible, I heard – that Flo Rida was amazing, not only as a performer, but just the whole crew, the whole entourage that they had. Everyone who was attached to Flo Rida was just terrific to work with and just a delight. That's what I heard through the grapevine. Was that your experience? A hundred and fifty percent. And not to sort of blow this out of proportion. We'll get to the, the thing that happened in a second. But <laughs> we've all experienced the last three years of very, very sad, very, very difficult times. Not a lot of smiles going on over the course of the last two and a half years. It's been a rough point in human history and in American history. Let's call it what it is, right? To be on the Fox Square for those three hours, it was like you were at a wedding that was just full of happiness. Flow Rider performed not just in the commercial breaks, not just for TV, but the entire time. He really? put on a concert. And, yeah, and the joy on everybody's faces out there. It didn't matter what your race was, what your sexuality was, what your creed was. It didn't matter if you were big or small, young or old. Everybody was happy. And I have not seen a group where everybody is happy in a really long time. And so, again, I know it's a concert. I know this is it, Flo Rida's music is silly. It's light. But in our human experience, wasn't it awesome that he was able to bring this entire group together and bring joy to everybody? And he said as much. He said, my greatest gift in life is I get the opportunity to make people happy. And boy, did he. I, I know it sounds crazy. I know you're like, really? Flow Rider? The guy who was in the music for The Hangover and, and uh, Tropic Thunder? Yes, that Flow Rider. And he's friends, if I'm not mistaken, with T-Pain, right? I believe so. I believe that's yeah. how he got his start. Mr. Payne, if you will. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this because this was sort of toward the end of my college experience. He got huge. And the first few years after I was out of school, that's in my mind the Flow Rider era. He had a couple pretty big hits. You were dancing to one of them, and then what happened? Again, as I always explain this, the song was low. Unfortunately, I got a little too low, more yeah. low than a 44-year-old wearing unnecessarily tight pants mandated by the Fox wardrobe department should have gotten. Mm. And said pants split beautifully right down the middle in the back. Did it happen on the air, or were you able to turn away from cameras when you were in front of the cameras? Like, people didn't see it happen, did they? Well, here's the deal. It did not happen during the cable broadcast, but we broadcast all shows on Fox Nation throughout the cameras running. Got it. So this was captured on Fox Nation, and because we have access to the Fox Nation feed, the great producers at Fox & Friends were able to take that and throughout the next three Fox & Friends shows, replay it so that ah. the nation could see it. So they made the sure that everyone got a chance. Did they slow it down? Was there some slow motion as well? There was slow motion uh -huh. and an arrow. They, they <laughs> just in case. An arrow right, just to so make sure. 
exactly where. Right. They like need a telestrator, like in sports. Right. Like, now look what happens right here. All right, slow it down. John Madden. John Madden came back from the dead and boom threw around my posterior. Yeah. yeah. Now, were you embarrassed or sort of uh, amused by all of this? Going back to the original topic, being a dad, you don't get embarrassed by much. I mean, the stuff that you do on a day in a day out basis, it's just like, whatever. Yeah, my pants split more or less on national TV, whatever. Again, it was part of the overall theme. Like people, I had people write me on social media being like, my day was horrible. And that brought so much joy to my day. I'm like, okay, you know what? It didn't bother me. You didn't see anything. You saw my underwear. Okay, whatever. I wear white underwear. Crazy. You know, people were so happy it was worth it. You know, Uh, it's. It made people happy. And cool. you were in a happy mood because you were saying Flo Rida put everyone in that kind of mood. So maybe you were just like riding high enough that it wasn't going to bother you anyway as you got very low to that song. You mentioned that the pants were too tight. I have to ask, therefore, were you wearing apple bottom jeans, boots with the fur? See, that's where I should have I should have stopped right there. Like I should have just made the apple bottom jeans joke and not gotten low. Yes. Instead, I decided to push the envelope and get up on stage and dance. And that's where I went horribly. Because you have to understand, I mean, again, tying literally all of these topics that we're discussing together, we had our baby around there, and then I was trying to find the time to return for paternity. But I had seen the Fox and Friends Summer Concert Series list, and I saw Florida July 8th, and I literally told my wife, I must get back there for that. You must rush this baby out. Not in anticipation of me ripping the pants, just because. Oh, I'm sure know. she loved that. Like, hey, uh, hurry up there with the kid having. I got to go to a concert. <laughs> but I knew it was going to be fun. I didn't know it was going to be that fun. Um, so I had anticipated. And what I had done is I had sort of come up with my lines. You know, I'd been using the apple bottom jeans boots with the fur line on my show with Carly. And um, all week I had been preparing. Did you see the movie Tropic Thunder? The Les Grossman character who does the 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 the, the, the low dance. It's it's basically Tom Cruise in a ridiculous getup. He does an amazing job. But I had been practicing doing that, and so I mm. did that for social media. It looked ridiculous. And so then finally, a couple hours later, we go up on stage, and then the pants rip happen. I should have stopped at Les Grossman. I should have stopped. Yeah, perhaps, but you didn't, and the rest is history. And we've got the audience right now, members of the listening public who are between certain ages are loving all of this, and I would say some people younger and some people older (laughs) have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. The lyrics mean absolutely nothing to them. They've probably never heard of Flo Rida. It was a moment in time, but it was our moment in time, so we wanted to talk about it. Todd Pyro co-host of Fox and Friends first every weekday at 4 a.m. with Carly Shimkus. Todd, good chatting with you. Let's go Devils, and let's talk again soon. Likewise, my friend. Thanks for having me. When we come back here on the Happy Hour, the CEO of Netflix is making a prediction. It's sort of a self-interested prediction on his part, but does he have a point about the future of television and entertainment? Does it mean doom for people in my industry? I'm not so sure. We'll discuss that right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on the happy hour, I'm Guy Benson on the Guy Benson Show. So here's the story. I saw this from the Fox affiliate in New York. The CEO of Netflix predicts that television, TV, is going to die within the next decade. Now, I am skeptical of some of this. Of 
course, as the CEO of a major streaming service, he would like that to be the case, have less competition, more people going into the streaming space. I kind of get that. Also, here on this show, we're part of an industry in radio where people have been predicting doom and gloom in the demise of radio now for years, and it has not happened. Now, do people consume in different ways? Are their listening habits different than they used to be in the realm of radio? Yes, obviously, things change, but radio as a whole is still going strong. And I think television, like he might be right that the exact current constellation of how people watch television right now will be basically gone by 2032, let's say, maybe. But the types of things that people are going to demand are going to remain the same in a lot of ways. You're still going to have people wanting to watch the news. You're still going to have people wanting to watch opinion programming related to news and political events and current events. You're still going to have live sports that fans are going to want to watch. And then any number of TV comedies, dramas, mysteries, thrillers, what have you. Now, whether that still comes through a cable box or whatever, and you sign up for a certain package and you get all these channels. I don't know. Maybe it'll look different. I've seen people now for years already, they've been making the joke that with the proliferation of streaming services, all of which cost money or most of which do, so you've got a lot of people cutting the cord, so to speak, on cable, but then paying for all this other stuff. And people joking, why don't you just package all of those streaming services together and charge one rate and you get all of them, which is basically cable, just different. You're calling it different, but it's effectively the same thing. So I, I think that's possible, right? When people start looking at their monthly bills, especially if they're struggling to make ends meet and they've got inflation, they're like, hang on, I'm paying for Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and ESPN Plus and all these other things. I think it starts to get a little bit unwieldy and probably more expensive than just a cable package might be, even with some of the premium channels. So I think we're in a state of flux as an industry. Things are going to move. They won't look exactly the same. But I think the idea that TV or people wanting to watch certain types of programs on large screens in their homes, I don't see that going away anytime soon. Maybe I'll be wrong. I've been wrong before, but... I think that it is oversimplifying it to say TV is going to be dead because I just laid out the reasons why. Is part of that because I work in TV? Like when my friends are cord cutting, I'm like, please don't. Just watch our stuff, although more and more of them stream or they listen to the show on a podcast. So, again, content is king, which is why we at Fox generally and here at this show try to bring you the best content. And how you choose to consume it is up to you. That's the future. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. Getting even closer to your weekend. But first, I want to replay part of what we discussed earlier today on the show with Corey DeAngelis, Director of School Choice at the Reason Foundation, an in-depth conversation about education and some of the huge revolutions happening when it comes to public opinion on that question. Corey is right in the center of it. Here's part of our conversation. Do you have a new op-ed out this week at foxnews.com? 
and you're making the case that school choice, your cause, is winning, but the teachers' union empire is striking back. So set that up for us. In what ways, in your mind, is school choice winning, and in what ways are these unions now fighting back? I mean, the teachers' unions overplayed their hand over the past couple of years and awakened a sleeping giant. Parents, these parents have woken up. They're pushing back. They're essentially a new special interest group in town, and they're winning. We're winning on elections when it comes to school choice candidates, but we're also getting school choice policy passed. Think about 2021. We're calling it the year of school choice because 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. Then in 2022, we had the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history. Just look over at Arizona. They just passed what's called a universal education savings account. Ducey signed it into law uh, earlier this month. And every single family, regardless of income, will be able to take their children state-funded taxpayer-funded education dollars to the education providers of their choosing, whether that's a public school, a private school, a charter school, or home-based education option. So Arizona just cemented itself as the number one state for educational freedom by far, and this is the, the gold standard of education policy, and the, the wins don't stop there. I mean, we just had a Supreme Court victory, Carson v. Macon out of Maine, uh, further cementing l- religious liberties and making it clear that uh, school choice does not run afoul of the U.S. Constitution, and, and, and uh, our religious liberties are protected as well after, after that case. And then now, obviously, since we're winning so much, the teachers' union empire is striking back. They're, they're shaking in their boots. They'll do whatever they can to try to fight against educational freedom. They want to protect their monopoly. They don't want families to be able to leave their government-run schools. Of course, that's how mon- monopolies act. Uh, but one way they do it is through the courts. So they'll file lawsuits. Uh, one way to do it at the at the uh, you, the um, national level is they'll try to say that that school choice is a separation of church and state issue, which obviously the word separation of church and state aren't in the U.S. Constitution. Right. And school choice programs don't establish a government, uh, a state religion. Of course not. And it, for the. And look, school choice doesn't run afoul of, of the U.S. Constitution or, or violate the Establishment Clause for the same reason that Pell Grants or the Head Start pre-K programs or Medicaid dollars don't violate the Establishment Clause because the money goes to the families, and you can choose between religious and non-religious providers. So that's, that's clear, uh, but that doesn't stop the teachers' unions from, from fighting every step of the way. In Arizona, which I just uh, talked about, this is the biggest U.S. Uh, victory on school choice ever. Of course, the unions are thinking about uh, trying to file a, a lawsuit against it, and they're even uh, doing a ballot initiative drive to try to get signatures um, to try to trap kids in, in their failing government schools, which is despicable after we're winning so much. So many families are clamoring for these alternatives. It's super popular, but uh, look, they they want to cement their monopoly. Yeah, and they've sort of skated for a very long time, and that's not really happening anymore for some of the reasons that you just explained. I think a lot of it goes back to the double issue of school closures, where you had teachers' unions, especially Randy Weingarten and her group, basically arguing through their actions that school, public school instruction, is not essential. It was more important to have teachers at home not teaching students in person during COVID, even when the data and the science didn't support that, they actually had the science and the data altered 
they stomped into the process and, and manipulated the science with the Biden administration using their political clout to do it, to keep more kids out of schools for much longer than the data actually had ever suggested ought to be the case based on you know actual outcomes and results. That, to me, was a huge scandal. And so when you have unions taking the side against students and against teaching – and against open schools, that's going to get people's attention. And then when a lot of kids were at home doing these failed virtual Zoom classes, more parents got to see more of what was being taught to them on the screen. And they weren't thrilled with the racialization of stuff and sort of this sort of left-wing social project experimentation, in some cases on very young students. That combination of factors helped Glenn Youngkin win the governorship in Virginia, a state that Biden had won by 10 points. Youngkin won it by almost three points, two to three points. That's a huge swing. You would think that that might be a wake-up call for the unions, or maybe they would say, let's let's maybe cool it on some of this stuff. seems like they're just doubling down. Terry McAuliffe in that race, his last rally that he held of the governor's race was with Randy Weingarten in Arlington, Virginia, in a very deep blue place. He lost that race, and yet on they go. They just had the big AFT Uh, conference. Val Demings, we talked about this earlier in the week. She's running for Senate against Marco Rubio in Florida. She was just heaping praise, lavishing praise on Randy Weingarten. And something that we wrote about at townhall.com, Corey, and I talked about on this show was probably some pretty bad news for Randy and company that arrived interestingly and ironically this week in the form of a poll that they themselves paid for. They commissioned this poll in education, and I cannot imagine the results are what they were hoping to see, and yet they are what they are, and you've been talking a lot about them. Yeah, I mean, look, the teachers' unions just took a massive L with that uh, self-commissioned poll. I'd say this is an epic self-own for Randy Weingarten. They really don't like the results. It doesn't look good for the Democrats in particular, who the Randy Weingarten's union, uh, 99.99% of Randy's campaign contributions from the AFT go to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. And in her own poll, Republicans are up on the issue of education by one point. And look, I mean, you might say, oh, this is close. You know, Republicans should be up by more. But historically, Democrats have been just destroying the Republicans on education. For example, a 2017 Gallup poll found that Republicans uh, were down on education by 19 points just in 2017. Now you have Randy Weingarten's own poll finding that the Republicans are up. And oh, by the way, Randy keeps tweeting every day that it's, it's, you know, Glenn Youngkin and DeSantis and the Republicans who are politicizing the classroom. Well, her own poll found the opposite result by five points. People were more likely to say that Democrats were politicizing the classroom too much as opposed to Republicans. That full discussion with Corey DeAngelis of the Reason Foundation, one of the leading advocates of school choice in the country. It's available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on that podcast, the whole show for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, there's a place called the Museum of Failure. And I'm not talking about the White House. We'll explain after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home Stretch, Friday edition on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free on demand every day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. And I teased before the break 
something called the Museum of Failure. And I feel like a few emails that I got last night might fit well, could hang on the wall, framed. We were supposed to fly to North Carolina for Adam's friend's wedding. And we had our tickets all booked. I typically fly United, but to try to avoid connections, we booked an American Airlines flight last night to Greensboro. I was going to do the show from down there today. And I was sitting at dinner last night, and I got an email, I believe at 6.43 p.m., that said that your flight is on time. 6.43, great. 6.48, five minutes later, your flight is canceled. Life comes at you fast. From on time and good to go to canceled in five minutes. So they sent me a bunch of alternatives. I couldn't make any of them work. I had TV this morning with Dana on the news channel. I had this show to do, and I can't just uproot my whole schedule. There's stuff to be done. So Adam took the day off. He was flying through Chicago to North Carolina. He's going to make it. So now, unexpectedly, I'm home for the weekend. And I know he's a little disappointed. I'm a little disappointed. The only person or quasi-person in all of this who's thrilled is our dog, Roy, who gets to spend the weekend at home with me as opposed to elsewhere. But that was a fail. And I will note this is the second time in, what, a month? That an entire trip that I had planned just went away because of flight cancellations. It is not a joke out there. It is an absolute nightmare when it comes to air travel. I'm supposed to travel abroad next month, and I am just praying that I'm getting the bad luck and bad juju out of the way now so it doesn't become a mess next month when it's much more complicated and higher stakes with a passport and everything, so we shall see. Meanwhile, this Museum of Failure, never heard of it. Apparently it's in Sweden. It's an actual place. And it highlights more than 150 failed products through the years. And apparently it's meant to show that innovation requires risk-taking and sometimes there is failure. And there was a Twitter thread going through some of the examples that are showcased at the Museum of Failure. And this was shared on social by someone named Trung Phan. And I enjoyed some of them. I had forgotten totally about, for example, the ESPN phone from 2006, an ESPN-branded flip phone that was actually very expensive at the time with a pretty expensive monthly plan. It lasted less than a year, and Steve Jobs of Apple told ESPN executives at the time, your phone is, quote, the dumbest bleeping idea I have ever heard. Dan, you're a sports fan. Do you remember the ESPN phone? It rings a slight bell for me. I do. It was at the end of my high school career, and I remember I was a huge sports fan, and it just had, like, someone, I think someone I knew had it, and it was, like, really grainy, bad video, and it was so expensive. It was, like, in the $300 range, or you got, like, a plan for it, and it, it was just a really bad idea, and it should never have happened, especially on a flip phone. I had also not seen this. This was from 2009. And 2010 didn't last very long. Twitter put out a device, a handheld device just for Twitter called Twitter Peak, P-E-E-K, 200 bucks. And the only thing it did was run Twitter. That's it. You could only see 20 characters at a time, apparently. And other linked websites were not accessible. So if there was a link in a tweet and you went to go click on it, too bad. You couldn't go. It wouldn't load. 
and it would only refresh the most recent 10 tweets in your feed. In other words, useless, absolutely useless. I'm not surprised that that one failed. I had never heard of it, and I was a pretty prolific Twitter user all the way back to 2008. The fact that I never heard about it in 2009 and 2010, I think, kind of speaks for itself. There are a few other examples that they give. I guess in the mid-2000s, there was something called a spray-on condom uh, that didn't work. So there's that. Then in the early 90s, Lifesaver Holes. You know the hard candy Lifesavers, which I like. Sort of the rainbow colors. I like the red Lifesavers in particular. They took that concept, like donut holes at Dunkin' Donuts, and they had Lifesaver holes that were just smaller. You could suck on them. The peppermint, they would basically serve as breath mints. And for some reason, it didn't work. Like, it flopped completely, even though it makes sense to me. Christine, Lifesaver holes on this list, on this Twitter thread, Lifesaver holes seems like the type of thing that I think overall was a good idea and I would purchase. I actually do remember these, and I thought it was fabulous, too. I'm really surprised that it didn't work. I wonder if it was more of a failure on the corporate side, not the fact that we, the consumers, didn't want it. Because I actually think it would have probably been easier. Because remember with the Lifesaver wrappers, you had to unwrap it and push through the Lifesaver. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. like, very user-friendly. I felt the Lifesaver holes were much more user-friendly. Yeah, well, for whatever reason, whether it's their fault or the market, I guess ultimately the marketplace speaks, and it didn't bear out lifesaver holes, so away they went. Here's another one, Harley-Davidson Cologne. This one lasted basically a decade. They have a lot of brand-based merchandise around Harley-Davidson, and they had a cologne, a scent called Hot Rod that they sold from 1996 to 2005, eventually failed. I don't know, if something lasts 9 to 10 years, can you really call that a failure? I'm sort of wondering about that. And then last one that I'll mention, from McDonald's, the Arch Deluxe. Now, on this list, I would imagine they have to put new Coke on here at some point. And what a total meltdown, travesty, disaster new Coke was. And they quickly retreated to Coca-Cola Classic. That's a famous one. But the Arch Deluxe at McDonald's, 1996, apparently one of the biggest flops in the history of that very successful fast food chain. They were feeling pressure from Burger King. So they made, I remember these ads, they made a burger that was marketed as an adult burger. Very fancy for adults. And they advertised the hell out of it. $100 million dollars in that advertising campaign. And a lot of the ads featured kids not wanting it and saying it was just too adult tasting. And I think I ended up having one. I didn't think it was bad. It just didn't do much for me. Obviously, it didn't work, and it went away after they burned through $100 million in cash to try to market it to adults. Christine, do you remember the Arch Deluxe? Did you ever have an Arch Deluxe? And I just wonder why they felt like this was a necessary be a good call to say look at this burger that kids don't like it just doesn't make sense and didn't even make sense to me at the time i've never had it i do remember i remember the ads i i do remember it but i've never had one um one other one that was a huge fail do you remember clear pepsi or were you too young for that yes i i i don't personally remember it but i remember hearing about it, it was a 
Crystal Pepsi or Clear Pepsi, whatever they yeah. called it. Ugh, it looked very gross. It was terrible. I don't. I, that di- probably didn't even last a year. I remember ha- must had to get it. Remember begging my mom, we have to get this. We have to get this, and it was terrible. Did it taste different, or was it just Pepsi without the food coloring? I think it tasted different. If I remember, I was young. You know, maybe like nine or ten. Don't forget how old I am. I am now, guy. It was a long time ago. Yeah, um, it was a but, very long time. Okay. <laughs> just along. Uh, but I do, I just remember I needed to have it. I was one of those, I was the kid glued to the TV, watching every commercial and then running to whatever room my parents were in saying, I had to have it. Like needed. Yeah, that, that does not surprise me at all. And in this case, the advertising did the job. You want to go out and try it. You did. And it was bad. Right. So all the best marketing in the world doesn't work if people don't like the actual thing once they try it. Hence, I think, the problem with the Arch Deluxe. When you've got Big Macs and the Quarter Pounder with cheese and the fries, just to like, you know, call it a day. I'm not saying you have to stop innovating, never introduce anything new. But some things hit, some things do not. And this was a flop along with everything else in the Museum of Failure in Sweden. So if I ever go over there, perhaps I will have to drop by. Just to check it out, because I do think it's kind of an interesting concept. And as soon as I saw this Twitter thread, I sent it to the group, and we immediately started chatting about it. I said, this is good fodder for on-air conversation. This is not going to be a segment that fails. And in fact, it has not failed. But it is over because we're done. Up on the clock, the weekend has arrived. Enjoy your weekend. Be safe. Stay sane. Back here Monday for more of The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.